How's it going? It's going great. I was waiting for you to do your hand fart, but... Oh, yeah. Here, I'll give a hand fart. Thank you. All right. Now it has now been the, christened. Now the podcast has officially begun. Thank you. Um, so, this is Viral. Welcome, listener, if you haven't already turned off hey. your podcast app, because <laughs> I did hand fart sounds into the microphone. We're not your typical podcast. No. Or maybe we are, to be fair. Yeah. Um, on this show, we talk about the weird and fascinating world of public health, uh, plagues, history, and the workforce, the people who um, work and do science behind the scenes to keep us all healthy and safe. So... It's been a few weeks since our last show. We've gotten kind of busy, um, had Thanksgiving, and now we're getting back into the swing of things. Um, what are we going to talk about today? We're gonna. I'm going to tell a story today, Ooh, and it's going to kind of lead into what we're going to talk about today. The fire is crackling. Yeah. Although this is kind of a scary story, Ooh. initially, I think. I mean... I guess you'll find out. So. Scary ghost stories and tales of the glories from Christmases long, long ago. Sure. It's uh, Public Health and Ghosts is the, the episode this, this, Perfect. this week. Perfect. Um, so. During the summer of 1999, New York City residents started noticing something strange with their birds. Dead avian corpses were being found everywhere. Robins, ducks, and crows. Ooh. Was this an omen? So you could basically couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting, hitting a, a dead, dead bird. bird. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Great analogy. Thank you. <laughs> Zookeepers were shocked to find their animals affected as well. A cormorant, two Chilean flamingos, and an Asian pheasant were found lifeless in their cages. What was happening to all the birds? So, tissue samples were sent from New York City to Ames, Iowa, to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Veterinary Services Laboratories for identification and classification. In Iowa! Interesting. Yes. Lots of corn and veterinary science laboratory work. Now I know, like, three things about Iowa. The Music Man. Okay. Uh, Iowa State Fair. Sure. And where you can send dead bird samples. Great. Okay. All really important. Cool. In August of that summer, two patients with severe brain swelling or encephalitis were seen by an infectious disease physician in Queens, New York, who reported the incidents to the New York City Health Department. After testing and identifying, identifying a total of six cases of encephalitis, the NYC Health Department officials diagnosed the cases as St. Louis encephalitis. Additional cases, mostly among the elderly, started popping up in an area in northern Queens. Mosquitoes are the carriers of St. Louis encephalitis, which prompted the city to spray the affected areas. However, it wasn't St. Louis encephalitis. Ooh. Dark turn. St. Louis encephalitis was a red herring. Sure was. For... 
further testing from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Veterinary Service Laboratories found the first reported cases of West Nile virus in North America. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. It ain't good, kids. This no. ain't good. So, the link between the human cases and the bird deaths had been established. What followed was the largest outbreak of West Nile virus in North America, continuing on for multiple years. In 2002, there were 4,156 reported cases with over 2,000 meningoencephalitis cases. And Good job, power through. Yep. And 284 deaths. That's no joke. That's no joke. And West Nile... I mean, that's the first time it was ever in North America. Yeah. It's still unclear how West Nile virus came to our shores, but we know that it originated in the Middle East, most likely in Israel. West Nile virus affects older populations as well as those with weak immune systems, which have been increasingly affected by subsequent outbreaks in the United States. So all those awful deaths, it was mostly the elderly and the immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. So... Animal-to-disease transmission has been a part of our history as a species since time immemorial. Even as nomadic tribes, our fragile immune systems battled zoonoses, or diseases from animals, like rabies, Mm -hmm. anthrax, tularemia, or rabbit fever, and as discussed earlier, West Nile virus. The most famous, or really infamous, of the zoonosis in history is the bubonic plague, because which was caused by a little bacteria called Yersinia pestis. pestis. Yersinia pestis. Yes. Oh, buddy. And that travels on the fleas of small animals like rats and squirrels. Unfortunately, as I'm sure we've discussed in other episodes, medieval folks thought that the plague was God's wrath or their favorite scapegoat, the Jewish people. Oh. Yeah. So sad. The... With the explosion in the human population, this forced humans to interact with animals as habitats overlapped and thus provided opportunities for transmission. So on viral, we talk a lot about disease, chronic conditions, the social behavioral drivers of public health. However, we often forget about how our non-human neighbors impact our health and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we don't make the link between humans and animals until it's too late which is why we have public health practitioners that specialize in veterinary science, and vice versa. Today, we have Dr. Melissa Feldman on the show to talk about her work as both a vet and a public health practitioner, as well as how awesome it is that she gets to play with puppies and kitties every day. (laughs) (laughs) So, welcome to the show! Thanks, guys! No problem! Yeah, so... um... Mel, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell us just a little bit about how you got to where you are and what um, what drives you in this in this particular field? Sure. Um, So I went to school at University of Florida. Got my go Gators. uh, Got my undergrad there in animal biology. uh, Stayed there for grad school. Got my master's in public health with a concentration kind of split between public health policy and epidemiology. And then I decided to stay at University of Florida uh, to get my doctorate in veterinary medicine. Yeah. 
just graduated awesome. in 2017. Ooh, yeah. May 2017. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of years of school. Yes, it's third sure of my is. life. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, you did some pretty cool and unique um, experiences while you were in your last couple of years of vet school. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those. Sure, yeah. I have a, a handful at this point. Um, I've really fallen in love um, during both grad school and veterinary school um, with veterinary public health as a concept and the role that veterinarians should be playing in public health and One Health, uh, particularly because I feel like veterinarians are uniquely situated um, at this interface between environmental health public health, and veterinary medicine. Um, we're trained to look at uh, medicine in terms of a population, not necessarily just an individual, um, which is what public health and population medicine is really all about. Um, so during my schooling, I was um, privy to some really cool opportunities, um, both with uh, the CDC and um, USDA with Smith Kilborn in New York, um, and with our state health department as well uh, to do various projects, um, everything ranging from creating uh, zoonotic um, public policy protocols uh, to uh, doing some foodborne, uh, foodborne illness work with the state health department uh, to doing uh, laboratory work up with Smith Kilborn in uh, New York. So really, really exciting, exciting stuff. Yeah, awesome. That's great. Yeah. Cool. So what exactly got you into wanting to do, kind of trying to merge both of these worlds in veterinary science and public health? Yeah, it's a very specific niche, yeah, I yeah. feel like, that <laughs> not many people are aware of. Even a lot of people that work in public health aren't aware yeah. of um, the connections. And <laughs> It's like a specific niche, but it's also like incredibly broad yeah, because it's exactly. like, oh, I'm not just a doctor of, you know, of medicine, but medicine for all animals, including humans, including <laughs> and having to know about bacteria and fungus and all of these things that can cross between uh, species. Yes, it can be overwhelming <laughs> at times because you have to take the details of medicine and apply it on like a macro level mm -hmm. to across different populations. Uh, so it can definitely be overwhelming. Um, but I think what made me fall in love with it was when I was taking all these epidemiology classes in grad school, I realized how important um, the zoonotic concept is in a lot of these uh, different diseases that we've been studying, you know, for, for years now. Um, most emerging diseases now, about mm -hmm. two-thirds of all emerging diseases, all have a zoonotic component to the disease yep. or have originated in some animal population. Uh, so it's it just goes to show how important the veterinarian's role in public health and future you know you know pandemic prevention projects is going to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, definitely. Like there are so many myths out there too about especially things like rabies. Mm -hmm. uh, what animals can get rabies? What what animals can't? Um, and you know and that's just a common example because it's something that I guess people would recognize pretty um right off the bat but i think we as humans are again super selfish because mm -hmm. 
<laughs> we forget that times that humans are also animals. <laughs> Surprise. It's very true. We tend to be egocentric. Um, even in the very definition of the word zoonosis, people tend to define it as uh, diseases that people get from animals, where in actuality, the true definition of the word means diseases that can spread amongst different species. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, so um, one project I did was actually for uh, my public health uh, uh, graduation project, our, our thesis project, was um, calculating prevalence and incidence of mycobacterium tuberculosis, which many people don't realize is a zoonotic disease, mm-hmm. uh, between humans and elephants of all what? animals. Yes. And uh, what people were afraid of was this, you know, very dramatic picture of, you know, a little boy going to a circus, interacting with elephants, and getting tuberculosis. Well, what we've actually found uh, through research and through all these calculations was that what ended up happening was a lot of the elephant handlers came from TB endemic countries, ah. harbored the virus, and would give it to the elephants. Interesting. Yeah. So the elephants can get it from humans, mm-hmm. but is there evidence that the elephants can give it back we have to it. humans? Or there's not strong evidence that... That's possible. It is possible, but only on a very, very like intimate, direct contact right, scale. Right, because you have so, to be with somebody for a long period of time to right, get right. TB. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, so the you some have to of get the really friendly with that elephant. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and a lot of these room with them for eight hours. And actually, yeah. that's what a lot of the handlers do. So, yeah. like these elephants that you know used to be. I think most of the circuses have like now shut down. Yeah. But like these elephants used to be traveling all the time and the handlers, I mean, there were times like on trains and stuff at night, they would just yeah. sleep with their elephants. You're right. Yeah. yeah. We, um, uh, my husband, uh, he used to work on a farm when he was younger and his neighbors to the farm that he worked on, cattle got, t- their cattle got TB and they had to be euthanized. Yeah. Like it was, but you don't think of TB as something that animals can yeah, get. Yeah, and actually that's a different strain of tubercul- mm-hmm. tuberculosis. That's um, Mycobacterium uh, bovis, mm-hmm. bovis um, which is a different strain mm-hmm. of tuberculosis, but also uh, very detrimental to the cattle industry as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it spreads really quickly, especially when you have cattle that are in a barn for long periods of mm-hmm. time. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Did he? So cattle workers have to get tested to make sure that uh, they don't carry the disease as well, because it can also be transmitted among uh, cattle and humans. Um, so a lot of cattle workers are tested. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So he, so they had both cattle and chickens. So he worked in in the chicken okay. farm. Gotcha. So he didn't really interact with the cattle, but I mean, working with chickens has its own set of potential issues, but, but yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, no, I, I just, I didn't even, even me, I grew up on a farm and, but we didn't have cattle, but you know, just thinking, wow, I didn't realize that, that tuberculosis could be, you know, transmitted among animals and in different species of animals. So yeah, it's a nasty little bugger. Yeah, Yeah. it is. No, it really, yeah. TV is awful. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like every few years there's something new that dominates the news and everyone's mm-hmm. afraid of it and it's yeah. usually something of of zoonotic origin yes and i don't know what it is about that particular um mode of transmission that frightens people so much but it really does like i remember the whole mad cow mm-hmm. scare and everyone thought that they were going to get 
mad cow disease. Mm -hmm. And it is a terrifying condition. Oh, it is. It is. I think mad cow had, I think, very specific qualities that made it so scary. Like the fact that it's like a prion disease. It's like... We don't even really know what prions are. Yeah, prions <laughs> are terrifying. Yes. Because apparently, like, let's say a cow dies and they have the prion disease and, like, their body rots and then grass grows up from where the mm-hmm. cow's corpse was. They can test the grass and the grass tests for those prions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, it just cannot be yeah. killed. It, yeah. it makes your weird. brain into basically Swiss cheese. Yeah. yeah. And it's I think that's terrifying. another scary yeah. aspect of the disease. Exactly. And any neurologic diseases are scary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and same thing with um, pig flu and bird flu. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need people who can understand how to navigate both of these worlds. And it takes a tremendous amount of training and experience and knowledge and drive in order to get into that world and navigate within that world because mm-hmm. you're not just having to deal with human medical doctors and that whole complicated experience, but also um, other species. Mm-hmm. But it's really fascinating because there's so many different avenues that someone um, who's interested in this type of work could could pursue. Yeah, could you, do you want to maybe talk about that? Like, what are some of the opportunities that somebody would have or, you know, that's interested in, you know, zoonotic disease, but also public health? So are we talking, like, from a veterinarian? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm always going to, I feel like, uh, give our veterinarians, like, an extra, an extra leg up because we, I feel like our degree is, allows us to do so many different things. Um, you know, we can work in clinical medicine, and even within the realms of clinical medicine, there's so many different avenues that we can pursue. You know, we can pursue research, we can pursue industry, we can pursue different aspects of, you know, private practice. Um, but if we wanted to go into research, we're able to do that. If we want to go into laboratory work, we're able to do that. If we want to go into public health, we're capable of doing that as well. And um, in terms of opportunities available uh to veterinarians in particular within public health and public health research, I feel like um, those opportunities are only going to continue growing as we start battling uh, the different, you know, hurdles we're going to be experiencing, I feel like, in the coming decades with all these uh, emerging diseases. Um, And I feel like uh, the veterinarians should really be taking, um, you know, maybe not the head seat at the table, but certainly a dominant position in the role. Yeah. Um, because we, because of, I feel like our unique training that allows us to kind of put all the different pieces together in order to, um, you know, create a solution to these problems. Um, and I think, uh, epidemiology and, um, different, you know, aspects of surveillance are going to play a huge role in that. Are there any professional associations? Um, I imagine there are for clinical veterinarians, and I know there are for, like, American Public Health Association, but they might, I don't know if they have a, um, a sub, like a, um, yeah, group made up of, um, public health veterinarians. I know that there are several public health veterinarians at the CDC who do research and who go out Mm -hmm. on, um, what are called epi-aids, or Mm -hmm. it's an epidemiologic Mm -hmm. form of assistance where uh, if a a state 
epidemiology lab is is overwhelmed or needs additional support, they can actually call on the federal government to send mm-hmm. experts to help with an investigation. Um, and some of those experts, they're chosen from a pool based on their um, their training and their experience, include veterinarians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's very cool that we have that cadre of experienced people that can do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a really good example that, like, perfectly, or, or that really highlights um, how important it is to have people who can investigate these kinds of oh my gosh. outbreaks? <laughs> You're like, let me choose. I know, yeah, there is a way, I, there's a ton of different examples. Um, you know, so all the veterinarians that work at the CDC, so I did, while in vet school, I spent a summer uh, working uh, in their epi elective program uh, and got to work with a lot of different veterinarians that work at the CDC, and they are just amazing, amazing, extraordinary people um, working for us day in and day out, and uh, they, a lot of the veterinarians work in their foodborne and water diseases mm-hmm. group, and they're just constantly investigating um, ongoing foodborne outbreaks. Uh, you know, they are constantly looking into all the different things we see in the news and kind of, you know, don't really pay all that much attention to. So, you know, a good example could be, you know, uh, recently with the Chipotle outbreaks, mm, of, yeah. you know, I think it was their spinach or their lettuce that they yeah. were just everything. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I like Chipotle too, but I mean, Chipotle is delicious. Yeah. There was some of their, well, a lot of it was like, Obviously, some of the training that they did was, they didn't do it right, and so, like, the food, the food service piece was problematic. But, again, the food source itself, like, provided the, you know. Right, and, and, like, in doing the research and, like, doing the legwork involved in figuring out what the cause of the problem was, it was um, water used from, you know, farmlands, reclaimed water, things like that, that they used to rinse the lettuce and the spinach was what created the problem in the first place. So being able to, you know, go backwards and trace all those steps is really important and, again, requires this, you know, macro level of thinking. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, another example could be, uh, you know, with the SARS outbreaks, um, you know, uh, there, there are ongoing SARS outbreaks, but uh, how long ago was it now where we were concerned about the pandemic potential of SARS? Yeah, that was like a decade ago, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, only just recently um, there was an article published in Nature of how a international group of scientists over there have been able to finally link um, the SARS corona uh, virus to a particular group of bats um, in some of some of the caves in China. What? Yeah, they've been having um, difficulty trying to isolate mm-hmm. the exact virus, and this is the closest we've ever na- been able to get um, to identifying the uh, SARS-like coronavirus in bats. Um, yeah, crazy. yeah, and it's kind of it just it all comes together because you know with. Um, you know, encroaching farmland and, you know, reducing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, forest and deforestation. And climate change. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All these things play a role Mm -hmm. in how diseases emerge um, in patterns that we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, similarly, I know with all the research into HIV and AIDS, Mm -hmm. they've been able to track it back into like the 1930s 
and uh, when it, they think, made a jump from chimpanzees to humans mm -hmm. from eating bushmeat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think they've been able to track it down almost to a single region. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing that, like, you can do that. Yeah, yeah. So um, we like to think about this in terms of, in egocentric terms, about, like, Absolutely. what bad things can happen to humans. But what can humans also do to animal populations? Because... That's a good question. I mean, that that's important. We Clearly we can give elephants TB. Which is <laughs> really sad. It's really sad. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we have now, we're creating more anti biotic-resistant bacteria, yeah. and um, yeah, I, I imagine, and you know what? People are kind of gross. Yeah, so, um, yeah. do you know of any, any instances where it's gone the other direction? Uh, I'm sorry, gone like, the other direction. where humans have created a problem in an animal population? Oh my gosh, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, again, an infinite number of examples, and a lot of it is going to have to do um, with you know, conservation problems and deforestation and eliminating uh, environments where animals have previously been able to, you know, thrive. Uh, and so a lot, a lot of the problems originate from, you know, just, again, deforestation and conservation mm -hmm. problems. Um, are we thinking, I'm trying to think of like a specific like disease scenario. But yeah, we know, we know that it's possible and we tend not to think about it in those terms, but it's important to. I mean, there's even things that are man-made that end up, you know, making animals more, more vulnerable, right? Like they're, you know, whether it's pesticides or mercury and mer fish, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that can make them weaker and more susceptible to. Oh, you know. bioaccumulation. Yeah, that yep. is very interesting. Mm -hmm. That's basically where you have micro amounts of, of metals mm -hmm. that get ingested. Yeah. Um, by small organisms, which then get ingested by larger mm -hmm. organisms. And as that process happens, more and more metal and more concentrations mm -hmm. of metal goes up the food chain so that, and we see this a lot in, in tuna, for instance. Right. It's happening now in plastic, too, though. Yeah, that's really you know? sad. Yeah, yeah. The whole plastic yeah. problem. Yeah, so like there's there's a lot of examples of how humans can affect animal populations too, because um, yeah, we're kind of messy, to <laughs> just to say the least. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one thing that we always like to do at um, the end of our shows, because we talk about plagues and diseases mm -hmm. and all those kind of fun things is discuss something that we're excited about, something that we're reading, watching, or enjoying. Um, it can be related to the field of veterinary science, public health, or whatever, but it can also be completely mm -hmm. unrelated. It'd be fun. Um, is there anything now that you're really into? I don't know. I started horseback riding again. That's really exciting. That, that is, is very really exciting. Ex that is super exciting. <laughs> that is very cool. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> oh my goodness. What about you, Quinn? Um, well, what have I been... Oh, yeah. We just watched... We just finished season one of The Good Place, mm. um, the NBC show. It's also on Netflix. I cannot recommend this show enough it's so good 
And it's so, it's just interesting, like, to hear you say that, because I, I've seen, you know, like, ads for it, and I'm just like, meh. This is one of those <laughs> shows where the ads are garbage compared to okay. the show itself. Right. It's created by Michael Schur, who was the creator of Parks and Rec. Okay, okay. And All right, now you have me a, a lot more hooked. So, okay. it, it, very much like the humor of Parks and Rec, and Kristen Bell is, Which I is love. the lead. Yeah. And there's a very like multicultural cast. Mm-hmm. Um the the cast is fantastic. And the the concept is so simple, but what they do with the concept is really cool and interesting. And okay. like it's one of those shows where you watch a couple episodes and then you're just like, all right, let's let's just watch two more. And then by the time you look at your clock, it's been like three hours. <laughs> All right. It's All excellent. Right. And yeah, I need to watch season two because I think it just got renewed for season three. Nice. Which I'm fascinated by. Um, so yeah, The Good Place. Great. Um, well, uh, I, I do have some exciting news. Um since it's been a while since we've had an episode. And part of the reason is because I passed my qualifying exam and now I'm a doctoral candidate. Yay! Yay. Way to go! Sorry, guys. I, like, had school and stuff. But... (laughs) And Thanksgiving. Um, but... So I've been doing a lot of writing. But, uh, what have I been reading? I'm still reading Good Omens. Mm -hmm. I started reading that, which I really... I, I like, um... Uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, so that was really good. We've we actually started watching The Punisher, which is really good. Yeah, I I haven't had like the emotional it's dark uh, capacity it's to start very The Punisher, dark. and I like dark. I know it's. <laughs> I'm I don't know the name of the actor, but the guy who plays The Punisher is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in The Walking Dead. Exactly. Yeah, he paid, was Shane? Is that yeah. Yeah. Shane. Oh my god. So good. He's like, I, you know, when you think of The Punisher, you think of like the, was it the 90s guy? Yep. Well, and John Travolta was in the movie. What? They filmed it in St. Pete. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Small world. I, I know. I feel like a lot of things that John Travolta has done, I've like blacked. It was like, a forgettable like, movie. My, yeah. Uh, but the guy was super handsome and, I mean, he was a great Punisher. But, the guy that plays Frank now is really, he yeah. really captures the Punisher. And, so. oh, I i didn't say this before because, Mel, you're going to judge me, but I'm still reading uh, um, The Wise Man's Fear. Uh, it's so good. It is so good. Why aren't you done yet? I, Ooh, <laughs> shame. <laughs> See, I knew that would happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm like, it's a okay. journey. Okay, okay, good. It's, yeah. It's, it's also like a thousand pages. It is, it is a long, good. a long It is series. very good. It is good. Um, I think the rights were just bought so that it's going to become a TV show now, potentially a movie. Yeah, Yeah. I think think Lin-Manuel Miranda is involved. Oh, yes, yes. He's going to create the soundtrack, supposedly. Which which would be perfect. Oh, I'm really excited about that. Music and performance is such a big part of the the whole Series, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. I also I thought of a better example of something that I'm into and excited about right okay. now. And it's a book I'm reading called Wooly, and it's the story of a geneticist up at Harvard, um, Dr. George Church, 
that has um, decided that he's going to try and um, kind of revive the woolly mammoth. What? Oh, yes. I heard about that. Yes. Awesome. I'm about a third of the way through the book, and I'm I'm very excited. I am very excited about it. I don't know why it took me a little bit to remember, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy, but that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you have to let me borrow that Jurassic Park theater. style. <laughs> because that worked out. Yeah. It worked, worked out, out very well. Yeah, it worked out great. Did you guys see the movie? That's right. Yeah, great. Um, well, thanks again for being on the show. Thank we you for really... inviting me, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry that my story wasn't scarier, but... <laughs> it was pretty scary. I mean, West Nile virus is no joke. West Nile is no joke. We still vaccinate horses for it here in Florida. Yeah, Florida's, pr- like, ripe... For all okay. sorts of well mosquito <laughs> mosquito borne illnesses. We have a program um, of sentinel chickens. I knew you that were gonna bring that up. <laughs> we we have these like little little batches of chicken flocks. With armor, right? Because they're sentinels. They're sentinels. Yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, do their thing. They're chicken yeah. around outside, chicken peck around. and scratch. And then we test their blood for uh, diseases that I, I can they like Get like harbor the, um, the bacteria, but or the virus, but not show clinical signs. Show clinical sure. signs. Yeah. That's that's yeah. kind of the situation. Yeah, for, nearly like, West nearly Nile every disease has an incubation period. Yeah, so mm-hmm. like I think that's the deal with the chickens. Can the eggs get it? Hmm, I don't know. Cause I love eggs. Love me some sentinel chicken eggs. Yeah, <laughs> some sentinel chicken eggs. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And they they actually talked about that when I was doing research on the outbreak of West Nile in 1999. They set up a network of Sentinel Chickens yeah, after that. Yeah, the Sentinel that. Chickens so, are, um, they're DOH employees. Yep. Um, oh, they're like our version of like canines. They have, they're, <laughs> oh. they have a little tiny ID badge. Yep, <laughs> sure. They, it's a good surveillance program. And an email address. <laughs> we were having our... our uh, winter holiday party next week, and all those chickens are coming. Ooh, no one better bring any public fried chicken, though. That's like sort of offensive. That would be kind of offensive. It smells so good, though. Mm-hmm. Do, cel- do chickens celebrate Christmas? I feel like they're more of maybe like a solstice sort of. Okay. Vibe. I don't know that all chickens are Christian. <laughs> that question is for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe another podcast entirely. I will write oh that gosh. in to podcast. I will yes. write that in as a Yahoo question. Maybe um, it'll be read on my brother, my brother, and me. Oh Our <laughs> yes. chickens, Christian. We can just we can just send that to them as an email, though. It doesn't even have to be Yahoo answers. Although Perfect. I would like to see what other people say. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you for uh, joining us, and thank you all for listening. Bye! Bye, guys! Here's a public health fact. The One Health Movement, that's the number one but spelled out O-N-E, is a movement to forge collaborations between doctors, veterinarians, dentists, nurses, public health, and other scientific and environmentally related disciplines. It is a movement dedicated to improving the lives of all species, human and animal, through the integration of human medicine, veterinary medicine, and environmental science. Among other things, 
there are several scientific journals related to this initiative, as well as a newsletter, a list of cataloged outbreak reports, like, you know, if you want to find out about animals who have tested positive for plague or avian influenza. And finally, information about animal and human disease links for you to read and enjoy. Thanks for listening to Viral. Today's show was written and produced by Lindsay Grove and Quinn Lundquist. A special thank you to Dr. Melissa Feldman for lending her insight in today's discussion. For more information, visit us on www.viral-pod.com, tweet at us, or follow us using the handle at viralpodcast, or follow us on Facebook as well. Our theme is Take Your Medicine by the Quick and the Easy Boys. As always, please remember to wash your hands.